Well, if you're joining us for the first time today, we are currently going through the book of Leviticus, and in particular, we've been dealing with the various kinds of sacrifices that were prescribed under the Mosaic law. Today, we are finally at our fifth and last sacrifice, which the book of Leviticus outlines, namely the guilt offering, the guilt offering as it is called. So far, we've seen how Christ is our burnt offering, how he's our grain offering, how he's our peace offering, and even our sin offering, and yet it remains only for us to see how Christ is our guilt offering. Now, the guilt offering is interesting in several respects. Uh, if you remember last week, um, I said we, we had a huge chunk of Scripture. It was like 47 verses on the sin offering. And I said, now be encouraged. It's a huge passage, but it's really straightforward, right? It's pretty simple, actually. With the guilt offering, we kind of have a little bit of the opposite, okay? Um, it's probably the shortest passage. It really is. Of all the sacrifices, it's only 13 verses. Now, we'll see that some of that is because some of the material we would expect to be right here, they're kind of common in the other sacrifices, are actually later on in chapter 7, which is kind of interesting. Nevertheless, it's still much shorter than the sin offering. It's a little bit more complicated in some ways. Now, um, we'll see that in many ways, um, there is still a lot that is here for us. There is great food for our souls in a big picture sense. But when it comes to the guilt offering, even myself, I was kind of left with some questions. I still have some, some unanswered questions after studying all of this. Perhaps the greatest one is uh, the difference between the guilt offering and the sin offering. In what way are they different? There's a lot of overlap between the two. In many ways, they're kind of almost the same thing. And in fact, some argue that they are really just kind of the same thing. Personally, I don't think that actually does justice to the genuine di uh, differences that are between them. It's interesting. I told you that last week on the sin offering, I said John Owen just absolutely nails it on the sin offering. Such a great description, right? Not so much with the guilt offering. I didn't find him all that helpful here, actually. He says the difference between the guilt offering and the sin offering is this. This, to me, seems to be the principle, if not the only difference between them, that the guilt offering provided a sacrifice in some particular instances which seem not to be comprised under the general rules of the sin offering. Okay, so what does the guilt offering do? Well, whatever the sin offering can't cover, the guilt offering covers. Okay, but why? Like, why are some things covered by the guilt offering and some things by the sin offering? We want to wrestle through those questions today, and I think we, we may still have some unanswered questions on some things, um, but generally in a big picture, I think we'll see some, some very solid answers and lots of food for our souls. Well, let's go ahead and dive into the text then. Um, really, the big picture that I want us to come away with today is that first, guilt offerings deal primarily, possibly exclusively, with violations against holiness violations against holiness. Whereas the sin offering deals with clean and unclean, it cleanses, it gives a cleansing for uncleanness. The guilt offering deals with violations against the category of holy. 
Secondly, whereas the sin offering is uh, a cleansing from uncleanness, the guilt offering rather is restitution and repayment for a violation of God's holiness. Um, that's kind of the big difference between that, um, between the two. And so having said that, let's begin. The first thing I'd like us to consider are the types of sins that necessitate a guilt offering. And I, I want us to discuss this first because, as I said, I think this is really where the main difference and distinction between the sin and the guilt offering lies, and I kind of want us to see that. After that, we'll look at the actual sacrifice itself and consider its purpose. It's very unique among the other sacrifices in many ways. Um, has a lot of differences from the sin offering. And then lastly, as we've done before, we'll consider how Christ is our guilt offering and some application for that. So, first, what kinds of sins in ancient Israel necessitated a guilt offering? Well, our passage gives us roughly three different kinds of scenarios in which an Israelite might need to offer a guilt offering. The first scenario begins in verse 14 of chapter 5. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. Now, what I want us to, to what I want to draw your attention to in this first scenario is really two phrases that are really important. They're related all throughout Scripture as well. They are the phrases, a breach of faith, says in verse 15, if anyone commits a breach of faith, and then secondly, the phrase, in any of the holy things of the Lord, a breach of faith, and in any of the holy things of the Lord. First, the term breach of faith, what exactly does that mean? That's how the ESV translates it. Honestly, that's a, fine, that's a perfectly fine translation. I think it's a little bit clunky. If you have the NASB or the NIV, I kind of like, I think their translation's a bit more straightforward. The NASB says, when anyone acts unfaithfully. Or the NIV, when anyone is unfaithful to the Lord. A breach of faith, you can hear faithful, unfaithful. It kind of makes sense. I just think unfaithfully is a bit more straightforward. The word itself in Hebrew is ma'al. Historically, in older English translations, that's translated as trespass. So if you read the, the uh, King James or maybe the Geneva, they'll refer to these as the trespass offerings, okay? The King James, for example, says in verse 14 or 15, if a soul commit a trespass, it's kind of how this has historically been understood, I think, however, the modern translations are a bit more accurate that ma'al is really a breach of faithlessness against God. It's often connected to treachery, deceit, even marital infidelity. In fact, if you think about it, infidelity, that's just Latin for not faithful, right? It's, it's a breach. It's often uh, more egregious. It's more flagrant than you have with the sin offering. Next, we are told that the guilt offering is for a breach of faith that someone commits, quote, 
in any of the holy things of the Lord. Now here, we're beginning to see what I've kind of said earlier. The main difference between the sin offering and the guilt offering is that the sin offering deals mostly with uncleanness, while the guilt offering is more related to violations of holiness, and we see it right here. Now, even before we explore what exactly is meant by the term holy things of the Lord, you should note that even the idea of a breach of faith or faithlessness, that term itself goes hand in hand with violations against God's holiness. To commit a breach of faith against God, to act faithlessly, ma'al, is often said to be done when someone has not had due regard for God's holiness. For example, when Moses strikes the rock in blatant disobedience to God, Therefore, God will not let him into the promised land. God says to Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 51, it is because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. So biblically, and we'll, we'll see this in kind of all the passages we go through just about The idea of a breach of faith or faithlessness, even that in and of itself is connected with a violation uh, against God's holiness. Now back to the phrase, the holy things of the Lord. This is really important to understand because this is the first scenario um, of what a guilt offering is for. What exactly does the phrase mean? Sometimes the term holy things can refer to the gifts and offerings that were given by Israelites to the Lord. They are consecrated. They are, they're considered holy because you have set them apart for the Lord. For example, in Exodus 28, 38, we're told that Aaron shall wear the golden plate on his head, which says, holy to the Lord, to, quote, bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. So it's very common to find that they're the holy gifts given And it could be that that is partially what's being referred to here. However, I think we're not exactly given specific uh, details on what is meant here. And I think it's probably best to understand holy things probably in the broadest sense possible. Any kind of violation against holiness is really being considered here. Though in the first scenario, it's only those that are unintentional or perhaps without premeditation. Um, If it was intentional, we'll see there are some intentional ones later um, that are uh, particularly sins against other people. But here, they're unintentional. Any violation of holiness, however, required a guilt offering. Now, as I said last week, there's not really a lot of mentions of the guilt offering, even in the Old Testament. There's actually none in the New Testament, which we'll see will make it interesting when we get to application You say, how is Christ our guilt offering? You kind of have to look at some broad strokes there to kind of see. He is, right? But there's none in the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, they are sparse. However, almost every time you see them appear, there's some kind of violation against holiness going on in one way or another. For example, consider the following passages passages with me. Turn with me first to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. Here we have an example 
of someone who unintentionally broke the vow of the Nazarite, okay? According to the vow, the Nazarite was holy to the Lord during the time of their separation. Verse 8 of number 6 says, All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Furthermore, during the time of his separation, he couldn't touch any dead body whatsoever. It didn't matter if it was your mother or your father. During that time, you were absolutely holy to the Lord. Verse 6 says, All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his mother, or I'm sorry, for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, he shall make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. But then we're given an instance in verse 9 where a guilt offering is needed. It says, If any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head. That right there is one of the very few instances where a guilt offering is necessitated, uh, necessitated, and it's easy to see why. The Nazarite was holy unto the Lord by touching even inadvertently a dead person. It says um, someone dies just right next to them. They keel over. We don't know why. We're not told the scenario, right? Um, maybe they accidentally touched a dead body. They didn't know. That necessitates a guilt offering. Why? Because they were holy unto the Lord. It's one of the few instances. Now, we're going to move on to another example, but I want you to keep the Nazarite in the back of your mind. Um, as Dennis would say, I was doing some ponderings this week, and I couldn't really find anyone to substantiate this, but I'm going to propose a potential significance to you when we get there. I'm like, oh man, I wonder if that is supposed to be a picture of this. We'll, we'll look at that. So keep the Nazarite in the back of your mind. But next, turn with me to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra chapter 9. Ezra 9 verses 1 through 2. Excuse me, I have a cough drop in my mouth. It says, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, this ma'al, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So notice the connection between faithlessness, a breach of faith, and the violation of holiness. Here, the holy race, or rather, all who were covenant members. If you were a member of the covenant, you were not to intermarry with those outside of the covenant, because you were holy. You as a people were holy into the Lord, and you were not to, to intermarry, and by doing so, you had disregard for the holiness of God. Well, flip over then to chapter 10 of Ezra. Chapter 10 of Ezra. We see verse 19, they have their repentance, and we see how they make it right. They pledged themselves 
to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Again, they violated God's holiness. They did not have due regard for it, and therefore they had to offer a guilt offering. Next, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 14, and this is where we're going to do some of our ponderings here, okay? Leviticus chapter 14. This chapter deals with the process for cleansing a leper. Um, leprosy in the ancient world and in the Bible was not so strictly understood as what we call lap- leprosy today. I think, Josh may correct me on this, I think the correct term for what we call leprosy is Hansen's disease or something like that. No, it has a specific term, but it's a very specific thing. In the ancient world and in the Old Testament, or even the New Testament, leprosy meant any kind of skin condition, typically. Uh, And we'll see when we look at the various kinds of ways it's described, it could take various different forms. Um, We might say if, if you had like a really severe case of psoriasis or something like that in the ancient world, that would probably fall under leprosy. Um, not just what we know of as leprosy today. Nevertheless, this chapter deals with a case in which either God has miraculously healed this person or their condition has just cleared up, and it's one of the few instances in which they have to offer a guilt offering. It says in verse 12, "...the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with the log of oil." and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. But now, I want you to ask yourself a question here. Why does leprosy require a guilt offering? Leprosy is really more connected with uncleanness, as we saw last week. When they walk around, they have to say, unclean, unclean, not unholy, unholy. So why is a guilt offering required? It's, it's plain to see in the case of a Nazarite, they are holy to the Lord, But why a leper? Here I can only offer some suggestions. They're really interesting. I wanted to go down this rabbit trail and really explore this. First, there is the very real possibility that leprosy itself was a picture of God's punishment for violating his holiness. Violating his holiness. Just as uncleanness is a picture of moral uncleanness, right? To be ceremonially unclean is not inherently morally unclean, but it's a picture of it. So also leprosy is a picture of being unholy, being the opposite of God's holiness and violating it. I think there's a case to be made for that. Interestingly in Scripture, when people violate God's holiness or they don't have due regard for him or his servants, there's several instances where he strikes them with leprosy. For example, in 2 Chronicles 26, we're told of King Uzziah. It says, But when he uh, he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful, ma'al, to the Lord his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, 
Leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. So right there, he is clearly not qualified to do the holy task of burning incense. That is only for priests, and yet he does it. And what does God do? He strikes him. And it's, it's specifically called unfaithfulness. Very interesting. Next, in Numbers chapter 12, when Aaron and Miriam, they oppose Moses because he took a Cushite wife. It says in verse 5, And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet of you, among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Notice the emphasis. It's not you guys were really mean to your brother Moses. No, God is offended because he is the holy God, and you have misspoken. You have gone against his holy servant Moses. Verse 9, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. They're not having a due regard for God um, by virtue of not having a due regard for his servant, right? This is why David will not lay a hand against Saul, because he's the Lord's anointed, right? So also here to go against God's holy servant is really a violation of God's holiness, and she is leprous. So perhaps leprosy is a picture then of the opposite of holiness. But then I got thinking here, and this was really a Dennis moment. It's very interesting that guilt offerings are very prominent in basically two scenarios. They come up in other ones, but they're very prominent in two scenarios, with either the leper or the Nazarite the leper or the Nazarite. But then there are other similarities between even them. For example, both have to shave their heads. The leper has to shave his head when he's being cleansed. And I think at the end of the time of the Nazarite vow, you have to shave your head, but it's not really mentioned for anyone else unless you're in mourning or something like that. It's kind of interesting. I wonder, this is, this is a supposition, I wonder if in many ways they are opposites. Just as the Nazarite is holy to the Lord, he's a picture of something totally consecrated to God, the leper is a picture of the opposite of that. You can't even be in the camp of the Lord. You have to be outside of it. And I wonder if that's a picture of, of the opposite of the Nazarite. Um, I tried to confirm that in some literature. Uh, and they are talked about a lot because of the similarities between them, even in Jewish literature. Um, but I, I haven't found a smoking gun yet, so for now we'll just have to say this is one of Dennis's ponderings, okay? Nevertheless, the big picture is that the guilt offering is for violations of God's holiness. Now, real quickly, let's move on and consider the other two scenarios mentioned that require a guilt offering, and then we'll look at the actual sacrifice itself. Picking up in verse 17, it says, if anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be, not be done. Though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, 
he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. and The priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. Now here, this scenario, um, I was somewhat puzzled by it because it's incredibly broad. It doesn't specifically mention holy things. It just says a person does any of the things of the any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done. In fact, it's virtually identical to another scenario given for a sin offering. It says if any of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt. So what's kind of the difference between the two? What would constitute this scenario? Honestly, we're not really told. I think they would have known at the time. I'm sure they could have gone to the priest for more explication. We're not quite sure. I think it's probably some kind of violation against holiness. I think all of these, even in the third category, with the mention of a breach of faith, that too is a a violation of holiness, and this is right in the middle. It may be that perhaps what is being suggested here is the case of someone who suspects they have violated God's holiness, but they're not quite sure, okay? Maybe you were a Nazarite, and someone was carrying a dead body, and you felt someone bump into you. Did I touch the dead guy, or did I not? I don't know, right? It may be that that is the kind of scenario um, that is going here, but we're not sure, okay? Lastly, the third scenario is very, very important, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, Or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or or anything about which he has sworn falsely, He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. This section is very interesting. It's uh, the sins that are mentioned here are in many ways sins against other Israelites, and they primarily have to do with property or money. Several things should be noted here. First, the property that is violated here is not holy property. There's nothing that suggests that it's, it's a violation of holiness in that sense, right? It's simply property or money. Nevertheless, notice it's still a breach of faith. Remember that? And remember, faithlessness is a violation of God's holiness. But notice, it's not a violation 
It's not a breach of faith towards one's neighbors, though it, it certainly is that. It's acting faithlessly towards them. But the passage says it's primarily against the Lord. Now, how would that violate God's holiness? I would say probably in the same way that Miriam and Aaron violated God's holiness by slandering God's servant. When you steal from one of God's people, you have a disregard for God's holiness because he has said, these are my holy people. And you have therefore done something very flagrant against God. Notice also that all these things here are really all premeditated. They're, they're of a much higher degree. It's not like with the sin offering where it's, it's unintentional or perhaps in a moment of weakness, but you didn't premeditate it. Some of these things here, especially robbery, you know, no one, I've never met anyone, I'm sure somebody has argued this in court, uh, no one accidentally robs someone else. There's, there's premeditation, and with that higher flagrance, it's really a, a disregard for the holiness of God. This is, in many ways, um, uh, I'm sorry, I got confused here. Oh, okay, sorry. It's interesting that these things that are mentioned are not ceremonially holy. In many ways, that's kind of what we saw with the sin offering. Remember, the sin offering um, cleanses for things that are specifically connected to ceremonial uncleanness. But it also deals with things such as rash oaths and not coming forward as a witness. And those things are moral uncleanness. That's not ceremonial. We considered, however, that God intentionally weaves them together so that we understand the ceremonial is a picture of the moral. When you become ceremonially defiled, God is trying to give you a picture of what your sin does. It morally defiles you. So also here, God weaves in the ceremonially holy things with things that are just morally unholy in general. And again, it's to teach the Israelites and us all of the ceremonially holy things, that's to teach you about true moral holiness. More, a ceremonial holiness is a picture of moral holiness. Well, that's what we can say about this section in general. Uh, it's as far as the, the occasions. I would say they primarily give us um, violations against God's holiness. Next, the really important thing to consider as we consider what the actual sacrifice does. What does the guilt offering affect? We want to consider that God intends that it would be restitution. It's restitution and repayment. If the sin offering cleanses, the guilt offering makes right, which was violated. The word for guilt offering here in Hebrew is asham, asham. Now, it can mean guilt, and so I don't think it's necessarily wrong to translate it as guilt offering. It's also related for the word to become guilty, to incur guilt, or even to realize your guilt. It can mean that. I think the better understanding is restitution, since it can often mean restitution as well. Now, you might say, well, how can something mean guilt and then making right for the guilt? But remember, we saw this with the sin offering. On the one hand, the sin offering, chatat, and chata have two opposite meanings at times. It can mean to sin or to cleanse. Here you have to incur guilt and to restore, and it's because 
the sacrifice itself causes that effect. With the sin offering, it causes a cleansing. And so the word itself can be used, it almost seems contradictory. By one, you are unclean, but it also causes a cleansing. Here, you can become guilty, but the guilt sin off, or the guilt offering also makes restitution. So they kind of have opposite meanings, but it's because one affects the other. Now, very briefly, turn with me to chapter 7. We'll look at the actual sacrifice before we wrap up for some application here. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. It says, This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar, and all its fat shall be offered. The fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from the kidneys. Excuse me. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Now, we saw early, but we just kind of skipped over this. The only kind of animal with a guilt offering that could be, on, that could be offered was a male ram or a male lamb. It's the most restrictive of all the different offerings. There was only one, and it's often a ram that is given. Now, what we see here then is that this really affects restitution. We see it in several ways in this passage here. You can notice, um, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, Okay, I'm sorry. The difference here between the sin offering and the guilt offering then are very significant as well in terms of what is done with the blood. Remember we saw with the sin offering, it was very detailed. A lot of things happen with the blood depending on who causes the sin. In the greatest case where you have a, a, an anointed priest who needs a sin offering or maybe the congregation as a whole, they do a lot with the blood. They even take it inside the tabernacle they sprinkle it seven times before the veil. They put it on the horns of the golden incense altar, and they pour the rest out at the base of the bronze altar. They do a lot with the blood. That's not at all the case with the guilt offering. It's not to say the blood is insignificant because it's thrown on the altar, as with the other sacrifices, but it doesn't really have a prominent place. Furthermore, what's really interesting with the guilt offering is there is no mention of the laying on of hands. We've seen that in virtually all the other sacrifices where, where there's an animal, whoever offers it lays their hands on them to signal the transfer of guilt. That's not mentioned with the guilt offering. Perhaps it is that by the time you get to the, the fifth offering, it's assumed that that will be the case. It's mentioned that they are to confess their sins, but it's not really explicitly said. It seems that really blood, since it is part of cleansing, and that's more associated with the sin offering, is not a big part of the guilt offering. It's more a picture of restitution. That's why whenever you violated your, your neighbor by stealing something, the first thing you have to do is actually make restitution to your neighbor. When it talks about restoring, that's not actually talking about the guilt offering. That goes before it, and then you bring the guilt offering. 
or even in other cases where there's no one necessarily, no neighbor who has been sinned against, maybe just with God, uh, um, the Nazarite um, needing a guilt offering, he too has to add a fifth to it. And it's the principle of paying for the damage you have caused. You're making something right. That's really the picture with the guilt offering. It's also unique to the guilt offering, potentially. You didn't even have to bring a blood sacrifice. You could exchange uh, the ram for the value of, uh, of the temple shekels or whatever, and you could, play, you could pay that. And that in and of itself, just the giving of money, paying the price for the ram, would also affect atonement, which really shows with the guilt offering, it's repayment. It's restitution for violating God's holiness. In a nutshell, that is how they should have understood the guilt offering in ancient Israel. And yet, what we want to do now is really ask the bigger question. How does Christ fulfill this? In many ways, it's very easy to see how he fulfills this sin offering. There, there is uh, no lack of references to the sin offering in the New Testament. There's not a single reference to the guilt offering in the New Testament. So how then does he fulfill this? Well, perhaps the closest connection between Christ and the guilt offering is actually in Isaiah chapter 53, the famous passage about the suffering servant. Turn with me there to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. This is uh, kind of the only smoking gun that you really find in terms of the guilt offering. Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There it says that he will make an offering for guilt. But you could really just say a guilt offering. It's the same word. You could even perhaps say he will make a restitution offering when he pours out his soul. The Messiah's atonement there in this famous passage is partly described as a guilt offering. And though there's no explicit mention in the New Testament to the guilt offering itself, Isaiah 53 is quoted many, many times by the apostles. It's one of the chief passages and it's easy to see why. You, you can't read that thing and not come away with Jesus Christ. And in that picture, um, it's, it's a picture of his atonement as a guilt offering. Now, if we look beyond mere explicit uh, references to guilt offerings, still we can find more. If we look and consider the principles behind the guilt offering, what necessitated it and what it was to affect, Still, we can see many other ways in which Christ is our guilt offering. In terms of our need for a guilt offering, the scriptures are absolutely abundantly clear. Not only are our sins uncleanness, they are defilement in the sense of not holy. They are violations against God's holiness. And just as uncleanness is a little bit more unintentional, but to violate God's holiness is fragrant, fragrant, flagrant, so also are our violations against God's holiness, according to Scripture, they are flagrant as well. They're an affront to Him. 
There's never been a moment where we existed where we were not guilty of having violated God's holiness. In fact, I would say to you, your very first sin for which God reckoned to you guilt was a violation of his holiness. From the moment you were conceived, Adam's guilt was imputed to you. And Adam's guilt was flagrant. It was a taking of the holy fruit in God's holy sanctuary. That was brutal faithlessness. And that was ours from the first second of our conception. We were guilty of violating God's holiness. Furthermore, we ourselves in all kinds of ways, before we came to Christ and yet sadly even now, live without due regard for God's holiness. That's very interesting. A lot of passages where God, the scriptures call it faithfulness, there's a brazenness and there's a lack of fear. You saw that with God speaking to Miriam and Aaron. Did you not fear to speak against my servant? There's, there's a lack of fear of the Lord, a lack of due regard for God's holiness. Yeah, brothers and sisters, that totally describes us before we came to Christ and yet in many ways afterwards. We live without due regard for the fact that God is the Holy One of Israel. We think things that do not live in comportment with the fact that He is holy. The words that come out of our mouths do not have the fear of God in them. And in all those things, they violate the holiness of God. You and I are full of faithlessness as well. A breach of trust, treachery against the Lord, infidelity. Oh, brothers and sisters, even after we come to Christ, that is so true of us. Faithlessness, breaches of faith against the Lord. Furthermore, we see that just as the guilt offering mentioned the sin against neighbor, so often our sins, brothers and sisters, which we sin against those around us, especially those that are closest to us that we should love the most, for whatever reason we're the meanest to them, right? Those are first and foremost disregards for God, God's holiness. It's a violation against His holiness, especially if they are saints of the Lord, holy ones of the Lord, you had disregard for his holiness. And you said that thing to them when you even thought that thing in your heart. All a flagrant disregard for the holiness of God. Furthermore, our situation was so, so damnable. Uh, you know, I sent out a, a testimony of, of Dominic recently, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but I love this one line in it. He says, I realized the deep pit I was in of my sin. That's so true of sin. We were in a deep pit, and all of our efforts, like quicksand to get out, just brought us deeper. There was no restitution we could make. What could we pay? What could we give to God that would somehow make right what we had done? Furthermore, there's nothing you can pay when you sin against an infinitely holy God. Whatever you might throw into that is just a drop in the bucket against his infinite holiness. And so defiled were we by sin, so diseased, that even our best works simply increased our debt and were violations against his holiness. And yet God sent his son as a guilt offering for our souls. The Holy One sent his Holy Son to receive 
and redeemed those who were defiled. He came and paid the restitution that we owed. Imagine that, brothers and sisters. Imagine if you were rear-ended, somebody is totally at fault. You say, don't worry about it. I'm going I'm to pay everything that I need, and I'll pay for you. He paid for the violation against his own holiness. So much was his love. Paul says in Colossians 2, 13-14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. When you violate God's holiness, his law demands payment. It demands that things be made right. We couldn't give it. But Christ gave perfectly satisfying, perfectly giving a full atonement and full restitution. Furthermore, although, again, we don't, we don't see many clear references to Christ um, as, as our guilt offering, an interesting way that we can connect it with him is also as our high priest. We read that the high priest of Israel, he had the golden plate here, and it says, it says, holy to the Lord. And on that, on his head, he bears away the guilt of their holy things that they gave, their imperfect worship, whatever was full of guilt in it still, whatever had a violation of holiness, the high priest takes that away. And so, all we can, so also we can say that of Christ with our own worship. Because Christ paid a full restitution, brothers and sisters, though you and I be faithless, we shall never be cast out. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.3, if we are faithless, he casts us out, no. He gives us a really stern talking to and diminishes the amount of grace he gives us. He puts us on a grace diet. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Christian, there may have been many ways this past week in which you had a, a disregard for the holiness of God. Perhaps not even something anyone knows about. Maybe within your own heart. Many faithlessnesses. The Lord remains faithful because Christ paid a full restitution for your sins. For you boys and girls here who don't know the Lord yet, you stand in crushing debt. Debt. You owe the Lord. You have to make right for the violations against His holiness, but there's nothing you can give to pay that. You could try to be a good boy, a good little girl, try to go to church, try to listen very attently in Sunday school. None of that will pay off your debt that you owe the Lord. The only thing you can do is come to Christ who says, I've paid it all. I've made right what you have made wrong by your sin. and You'll be fully forgiven. And that's the hope of all of us here today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that although so many times when people violate your holiness in Scripture, you strike them. You strike them with leprosy. You strike them dead. 
Yet, Lord, you showed us mercy. Rather, Lord, you struck your son in our place. Father, would you help us to live with a due fear of you, with a due regard for your holiness? Would you help us to live in full confidence and faith of the holiness that is ours in Christ Jesus? And with that in mind, to put off unholiness and to further put on more holiness. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus.